Hello and welcome to the Stack Magazine's podcast. My name is Stephen Watson, I'm the founder of Stack, and this week's episode was recorded live at the Book Club in London on Tuesday the 30th of January 2018. It was our first Stack Live event of the year, and it focuses on the independent magazines that are trying to change the way we experience and think about the world. There are lots of these magazines around at the moment, and we had a totally packed panel featuring James Cartwright from Weapons of Reason, Rob Orchard from Delayed Gratification, Sean Dagan Wood from Positive News, Samira Shackle from The New Humanist, and Justinian Tribune from Migrant Journal. Do listen through to the end for the audience Q&A. We had some really interesting questions and answers covering a range of subjects from distribution through to getting paid as a journalist and the whole question of class in independent publishing. You'll notice that I've edited the questions in places. We didn't have a microphone in the audience, so I've repeated questions back just to make sure that they're audible to everybody. I'm very pleased to say that this week's episode is supported by Park Communications. They were there on the night with their big racks of the beautiful independent magazines they produce. And as you'll hear, they actually print positive news. So if you're thinking about making your own magazine, do drop them a line and find out what they could do for you. They're on parkcom.co.uk. That's parkcom.co.uk. Okay, that's all from me for now. Let's pick things up in the basement of the book club in Shoreditch. Thank you very much. Welcome to the first Stack event of 2018. Uh, We have got a a bunch of magazine makers tonight who are trying to make a difference in the world. And there's one magazine maker in particular here who we have to blame for tonight because uh, Rob Orchard from Android Classification, uh, he and I share some office space. And just offhand, uh, at the start of this year, he was like, wow, Christmas sales are really good this year. We were like 40% up year on year in our Christmas sales this year. And I was like, we were. (laughs) (laughs) So that 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 set my mind working. I was like, surely it can't just be that people love delayed gratification more than stack. There must be some deeper kind of meaning behind this. And I started thinking, I wonder if there's something at the moment about people struggling to come to terms with this world that we live in, things are changing so fast, so many unexpected changes coming at us. Are people looking to uh, magazines, as uh, in parts, for some way of kind of understanding that world? And then we put this event on and it sold out like super quick. Um, and apologies for the people who are standing at the moment because we've run out of chairs. So that also kind of made me think that maybe there's, there's something in that. So I wanted to bring together a group of independent magazine makers who in really quite different ways are trying to uh, make a difference to the way that we think about and experience um, the world. And I want to jump straight in to the nub of things and I'm going to invite you one by one to introduce yourselves, your magazines, tell us why you make your magazine and what is the big challenge, what's the big difficult thing that you face in making that magazine. So James, we'll start down there with you. Hello, uh, I'm James Cartwright and I'm the editor of Weapons of Reason magazine. Um, 
Uh, Weapons of Reason is a it's a kind of a finite project. It's eight magazines, um, and each issue we explore a specific theme that we think sort of is affecting humanity sort of in an acute way. So we started off with the Arctic, moved on to mega cities, moved on to ageing. Uh, our last issue was all about global power. And is that better? And uh, I'm currently working on an issue all about food. Um, and I think, well, personally, I make the magazine because before I started to make it, I didn't really have a kind of fixed understanding of what sort of made the world tick. And in making it, I get to sort of research and better understand the, the wider world. Um, and the biggest challenge that I face at the moment is just being able to make it frequently enough. We sort of used to say that we were biannual, and we've taken that off the website because we're sort of sporadically published. We publish like been doing it for three years and we published five, so yeah, not regular enough. And, and what is it that stops you from being as regular as you want to be? Um, well, we're, we're, we're sort of, uh, I operate with uh, an agency called Human After All, um, who are a design agency who work with people like the World Economic Forum and sort of mostly mostly NGOs and kind of charities and things like that. And it's just competing with client work, really, sort of trying to find the time to, to get an issue and put an issue together um, rather than kind of engaging in, in, in projects that sort of keep the lights on. Sure, that makes sense. Rob. Um, hello everyone, I'm Rob Orchard, I'm the editor and founder of Delayed Gratification magazine, slow journalism magazine. Um, we launched it in 2011 uh, with uh, this group of five of us, um, all journalists and editors, and it was a pretty dismal time for news journalism, and we were looking out um, across what was happening in the industry, um, everybody was saying that print was dead, that digital was uh, the future, um, loads of journalists were getting laid off, and the remaining journalists were having to write more and more stories. Um, with fewer and fewer resources, um, and it was being monetized through ever more invasive pop-up ads and all sorts of things like this. And we looked at it and we're like, this is, this is just dismal. Um, you know, the space to actually write something proper, to give journalists the time to do what they do best, to go out and search things and ask awkward questions and you know, nosy around the place and so on, and deliver their, their best approximation of the truth. All of that is going by the wayside. So we set up this magazine um, to be everything that you know, the, 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 kind of the, the new model was not. So instead of being digital, it was going to be print. Um, instead of being throwaway and disposable, it was going to be designed to be kept and treasured. Um, and if you've um, got any subscribers, you've got any subscribers here tonight? God bless you all. Thank you very much. Um, no, genuinely, God bless you all. Please, please never stop subscribing. Um, uh, but like, um, so you will know that when you put the magazines up in your bookshelf, it all forms this very pleasing sort of thing with the bubbles going up and down and stuff like that. Um, so we wanted it to, um, in, instead of being knee-jerk, we wanted it to go the other way. So what we do is once every three months we draw a line in the sand, we look back over the big events of that quarter, um, and we return after the dust has settled. So we ask the question, what happened next in stories, um, rather than just kind of doing knee-jerk reaction, helicoptering somebody in, um, and then moving on to the next story. Um, and instead of being funded by advertising, we were uniquely funded by our readers. So it was advertising-free model, um, and the idea was that um, you would just build a community around an idea, and, and that would allow you to invest in better method journalism, which has happened, um, but it's taken seven years, um, uh, and it was quite a struggle for the first bit. And in terms of the stuff that's, that's stood in our way, I think it's quite a broad thing, which is that, um, uh, and as anybody here who, who runs an independent magazine will know, is that none of the kind of the architecture of magazines is geared up for your magazine. Um, so uh, the distributors um, are not geared up for you. They are geared up still for those 
really low cost mass sort of circulation titles um, that would uh, basically monetize through advertising and sometimes lose money on copy sales. Because actually if you're trying to get something going just through copy sales, they, they really don't kind of understand what it is you're trying to do. Um, you may be on a sort of slightly strange frequency as well, that kind of, that doesn't work. The subscriptions houses are pretty much again geared up for a very different sort of experience, not that kind of like um, intimate, friendly, you know, conversational, community focused uh, feel that you want to, to give in terms of your service to your subscribers. It's all very kind of mass, you know, like you have 200 people in a room answering phones and being like, hello, this is um, the lay gratification or whatever that is. <laughs> so I think that's, that's uh, a problem. Um, and it's something that Steve and I have spoken about a lot, but I think there are some, some solutions starting to emerge uh, around that. Hi, I'm Sean Dagenwood, so I'm editor-in-chief of Positive News magazine which is the inspiring current affairs magazine. So we publish good journalism about good things that are happening. Um, we call our approach constructive journalism, which is an idea that's now starting to gain traction in the, the news media as a whole. So the idea here is that it's rigorous, quality, independent journalism that's still critical, trustworthy, um, but it's focused on solutions. We, we address issues from the point of view of what's been done about them, where are the possibilities for change, where is progress happening. Um, and the reason we do this is I feel that there's a negativity bias in the news media. Um, so as much as we need to hold power to account, as much as we need to expose the problems that exist in the world, that's only a narrow part of what goes on and that there's an imbalance. And actually having this focus on doom and gloom all the time in the news media can leave a lot of people feeling disempowered, hopeless, cynical, and there's decades of research now that um, back this up. You know, the effect of negative news on people can have mental health impacts, for example. So we're looking to offer an alternative by informing people about what's going on in a way that is inspiring and empowering. So we want to offer a different lens on the world to complement the rest of the, the news landscape. Um, we're a quarterly print magazine as well. And um, the biggest challenge we face is probably resource constraint. So um, we're a small organization and we're growing, our audience is growing, we're growing as a business, which is fantastic. Um, you know, we really believe in paying our journalists well, paying our photographers well, producing a quality, um, well-designed magazine, and that doesn't come cheap. And um, you know, there's so much that we want to do to kind of bring our journalism to more people. Um, but if to do that with integrity and without going to you know the traditional advertising model, which you know, isn't working anymore anyway, um, it takes a lot of long hard graft. So we're you know we're really playing the long game with it. Um, and um, you know although we've a couple of years ago we did a big crowdfunding campaign and we got um, a decent amount of investment from our readers, which um, we used to then relaunch the publication. But still, it's um, you know it's 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 difficult. We have to. We have to be um, very economical in what we do. So, um, yeah, that's the biggest challenge, really, is that, um, I mean, a lot of media, it's, it's the financial context of what we're doing. Um, but we really believe in, um, you know, going to our community of support as the, the foundation for how we grow. Thanks. <laughs> Hi, I'm Samira Shackle. I'm deputy editor of the New Humanist magazine. Uh, and I think the New Humanist is probably slightly distinct from the other magazines that are represented here because we aren't a kind of recent startup. Uh, 
We're run by a charity, effectively, called the Rationalist Association, which has the aim of promoting rational debate and evidence-based uh, evidence discussion. Uh, and it has its roots. It was founded in 1885, so definitely quite a long time ago. Uh, and it has its roots very much in the atheist movement. Um, so the magazine, however, is much broader than that. We're a, a quarterly magazine, and so we still have this charitable purpose about promoting rational debate, uh, inquiry based not on belief but on evidence. Uh, so that's something that kind of underpins the journalism that we do. However, I think uh, in certain periods in the magazine's history, it's been very narrowly focused on kind of atheist, secularist issues. And we're seeking to appeal to a much more general readership. So I think there are a lot of people uh, in the British, British society and in the world generally actually who share kind of broad secularist values without necessarily having the defining point of their identity being that they're non-religious. So that, those are the people we're really seeking uh, to reach with the magazine, which has been effective approach, I think. So our newsstand sales have gone up uh, nearly threefold since 2013, which is when uh, my colleague Daniel, who's editor, uh, editor-in-chief, we're just a team of two on the editorial staff, um, when we kind of relaunched the magazine with this, with this kind of broader aim in mind. Um, so similarly, I think to some of the other people speaking, we, we, because of the quarterly print cycle and the fact that we're independent, we're kind of uh, not bound by daily news cycles and those types of pressures. Uh, we aim to give space to kind of very serious and substantial writing about ideas. So that's a mix of uh, pieces that very explicitly engage with the world around us in terms of, of reporting. Uh, but often with a kind of uh, basis in ideas as well. So sort of aiming to give readers uh, a way of, different way of thinking about events that are happening, whether those are kind of developments in science or politics or world affairs or whatever it is. So it's all kind of very much grounded in, in ideas and, and debate and, and sort of rational inquiry. So that's what we're doing. Um, in terms of the challenges, I think that there's much the same as, as the others. It's a question about resources. You know, we're a team of two. We have uh, a designer and a copy editor who come in around print time um, as well. But, you know, we're, we're a team of two. We both work part-time, so there's an obvious question of, of just time. Working on tight budgets, we similarly, um, both Daniel and I are also freelance writers. So we think it's very important to pay writers fairly, pay photographers fairly. Uh, pay illustrators fairly, all of those things. So uh, you kind of need to be quite careful about commissioning, I think, because we can't afford in the way that a bigger publication might be able to afford to sort of over-commission and kill a load of it and pay people kill fees. We just can't do that. So you need to think quite carefully about what you're commissioning and why and, and being willing to kind of put the work in to make pieces work. Uh, we don't have much of a market, I mean, not much of a marketing budget, we don't have any marketing budget, so the marketing is the, is the product itself. Uh, so the way we kind of manage that is, is we work quite closely with illustrators and designers to make the front cover really good. Uh, that's obviously been effective on the newsstand. We also use the front cover image to promote the magazine online, so it's really kind of taking quite a lot of effort over that, using the tools we do have at our disposal to promote the magazine, so kind of establish social media presence, the website, all of those things. Um, I think one advantage we have in being run as a charity, although it carries uh, certain commitments that you have to be quite careful about uh, sort of not being party political, for instance, because, because it's a charity, 
but we do have the benefit of having a kind of established community of people who donate to the charity. So. Hi, my name is uh, Justinien. I'm one of the editors of uh, Migrant Journal. So we are a six-issue biannual uh, magazine um, looking at migration and its impact on space. So migration in all its forms and its relationship to space. Uh, we uh, truly try to be an interdisciplinary platform. So artists, journalists, photographers, philosophers, uh, urbanists, I'm one of them, uh, architects, designers, so we really have uh, quite a lot of different voices um, uh, being allowed to write and uh, publish their own projects uh, in Migrant Journal, and that's really important for us. And we started this magazine because we uh, wanted to uh, create that interdisciplinary dialogue, I mean discussion, uh, and uh, we thought that the best at a time of, um, of you know, migrant crisis, and it was uh, then named, uh, we wanted to propose a, um, an intellectual response or a cultural response to the issue of migration, trying to reclaim that world of migration, so not only leaving that to main media and, 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 and politicians, uh, in a sense, but also reclaim that world of migration, show that it's everywhere, that it's part of, of our society, of our way of life. Um, and we wanted to invite as many different disciplines uh, to participate to that. So we created that magazine with a, first with the Kickstarter campaign, and since then we've been funding uh, the development of the magazine via sales. Uh, it's our own, uh, it's the only source of revenue. Um, and uh, I would say the main issue for us, uh, and it's related to our ambition, is to try to, we work with calls for proposals, so we invite people to send us pitch uh, and projects and pieces that we're gonna then edit, uh, review and, and publish. And the main uh, issue for us is to be able to reach out to as many people, disciplines, uh, diversity, and for at any level of diversity, um, uh, localization as well, I mean, where, where people come from, where people uh, hail from, uh, so that's uh, really a big challenge for us, uh, both in terms of the contributors and in terms of the readers, uh, obviously. As, uh, for the, like, it's the same as for the New Humanists, we do not have any marketing budget. I think I spent once £5.93 on Facebook ads. Uh, <laughs> I for it. Four likes, we had four likes. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, that's really important for us, and that's that's really really tricky. I think we are slowly, uh, well, obviously we're being known by more people, and we are slowly breaking the boundaries that we also want to break in our intellectual research. Uh, but that's really really slow, and and it's been really interesting to see actually those boundaries, both professional, social, and 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 from a geographical point of view as well. Okay, all right. So very uh, marked. Got the uh, mic. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he's dismantling the stage. So, uh, resources are obviously like a, a, a recurring theme through this, but we've also got some infrastructure here and something about uh, being able to reach out to contributors and, and to readers. Um, Rob, what do you make of my thesis? My, the, so this idea that this is a particularly febrile time, people are looking for something to hold on to and understand the world. Yeah, I, I, I think that's, that's probably right. And I think there's all sorts of different things going on. Um, I think part of it is print. Uh, so I think the pendulum always swings back a little bit. So, you know, if you go back seven years, 
we were all completely in love with our smartphones, we were completely in love with what digital could do for us, um, and now actually that sort of digital fatigue has started to set in, people feeling a bit wary about the fact that all they do all day long is look at screens from the moment they kind of wake up to the moment they go to sleep. Um, so I think that is contributing to, to print, plus also amazing independent print shops opening up, you know, like places like Mac Culture and stuff like that, that's really, really helping. But I think there's a, there's a sort of a need, and I think the, the magazines that have done really, really well in the last few years have all been speaking to this sort of slowed down lifestyle, rediscovering kind of the old ways, you know, like catching a rabbit and cooking it in a pot in your back garden with a massive beard and stuff like that. And, and sometimes I look at those magazines, as you and I have had sort of chats about that before, and I'm like, dude, why are you so much more successful than us? We're sending people to like Gaza and Zimbabwe and I'm spending like every night that they're away worrying and worrying in case something bad happens to them. And you just basically like, you know, like written the word tranquility on a page with a picture of a cup of coffee next to a swimming pool. And that's, that's fucking it. Anyway. Um, but, so I that, that's that, anything about this. <laughs> but, that's been doing, but, no, but that's been doing well. But now, I think also, I think it's true that the last couple of years have felt incredibly precarious in all sorts of different ways. A lot of kind of assumptions that people had about how things were going to turn out, elections, referendums, all sorts of stuff has been pulled out from under them. And, and also the world seems like a terribly scary and confusing place. So I think there is a place for magazines that are. The other thing that's, that's creeping in is people are no longer trusting a lot of the sources that previously they would have trusted. Um, uh, and so I think if people can set themselves up as you know, honest brokers who are going to tell the truth and, and try to help demystify the world, then, then that, um, yeah, that, that, is, that is sensible, I think. Uh, and it's, it's notable as well that that kind of so the type of magazines that you talk about, <clears throat> which maybe are very design-led and there's quite a, a kind of a, a sparse aesthetic, that I think it's, it's notable that it's easier to do that as somebody with no experience because you can, the, you know, you can have uh, an Instagram account or you can be a, a great photographer and you can transfer that to print in a way that if you haven't learned to be an editor, a, a writer and then an editor, it, it takes a long time to learn how to do that stuff and that's a barrier to entry that, uh, that you don't get so much on the more design based magazines. I think you've got sort of you've got five serious titles here right trying to do serious work about serious things that are going on. I wonder how many more were on your list if we couldn't make it or if we dropped down because in, in all seriousness like the percentage of, of indie magazines that are addressing anything that matters kind of like broadly you know political stuff current affairs you know things like that um, is tiny, and I'm always surprised by that, that there aren't more in that space. Um, and I think part of it is it's difficult. I think it's also, um, with, with the resource issue, I think, you know, there's a lot of independent magazines that um, people run in their spare time, and, you know, and fair play to the effort that people put in to do that. Um, but I think when you get to the step when, when you try and turn it into a business, and then suddenly, to take that step, it's, it's, a, it's a real leap, because then you have to resource rent staff. Um, all the overheads and, and everything and marketing budgets and um, it's um, to, to go into that next stage especially if you're doing you know what we might call serious journalism um, you can't do that half-hearted to be successful so you have to resource it adequately and I think that's because um, I share your feeling Rob you know sometimes I've seen other magazines and think you know well, how do they manage to do this and be that successful when it's um, about what, what did you say a cut next to a dog or something and, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, um, 
And um, yeah, I think there's that there's that difference that to take it to that level, you then um, you then put up a whole load of new challenges for yourself, essentially. I think there's a level of intimidation that comes with dealing with subjects like someone else deal with as well. Like you talk about having a having a journalist in, in Syria, like it's hard to sort of transition from you know doing something a different career, say, or like working in, in print, to then you know being a journalist to commissioning people that are putting themselves on the front line in that way. And like I I. I only had a couple of stories where I've had a, a, a journalist that could be in danger, and that was, that was terrifying. I was bricking it. Whereas the magazine I worked on before was an arts and design title. I never had that. I never had to worry about anything like that. It's, kind of, it's like a step up in terms of the things you have to, you have to worry about. I guess you also have to um, take a, a perspective as well. And this is something that Weapons of Reason does very well, I think. I think that you uh, show uh, a series of perspectives on an issue without necessarily taking one of them as your own and saying, so, so this is what we believe. But still, even the act of doing that means that you are, you know, you, you have to spend some time, figure out what do we think about this, and then go ahead. Yeah, no, definitely. I think before I put an issue together, I read and read and read and read and read. And I, I'm very nervous about making editorial decisions until I feel like I'm well informed enough to, to have a discussion with the people that I'm commissioning. Like, I really hate the idea as an editor just relying on the expertise of your journalists and, and not being well informed yourself. I mean, that's something that I'm particularly sort of paranoid about in, personally. But, um, but yeah, I also think that you have to sort of highlight the idea of trusting our readership as well. Like, I, I don't particularly want to produce a magazine that's totally partisan and I want to present a range of ideas that people can sort of take something away from and make their own decisions and kind of yeah, use their own faculties to Away from. We, we, so we had an event at the V&A last summer uh, where we were like showing various different magazines and I, I wasn't there but apparently someone came and picked up Weapons of Reason and read it and threw it down in disgust and said this is just leftist propaganda <laughs> and then apparently like the next three people in the queue were like have one of those please. <laughs> Perhaps I've been really unsuccessful in It's like a delusion I can keep from there. Yeah. <laughs> leftist propaganda. I can't think of a time in Weapons of Reason where I've read a very conservative perspective, point of view. Yeah, I think that's probably true. I think we're definitely <laughs> working, we're trying to produce content that is, uh, I suppose, broadly comes from a leftist perspective. But um, this is tricky because I would argue that I don't. Leftism is not a term that I think is particularly useful without getting into kind of like boring <laughs> semantics. Like, I don't think, I, I just don't think it's very useful to see our magazine that way. I think we're trying to present a range of ideas that make sort of logical sense to us and kind of contribute to the idea of moving forward. And, and I'd, like, I'd like people to read the magazine and be able to sort of take, take our ideas and you know, change the way they behave. And sort of like it contributes to, sounds clear, but like a better world. And, uh, that's leftist then. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's leftist. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So, the, so, so, Samira, so here you are working on a magazine that was founded in 1885. Yeah. <laughs> I'm assuming you don't have like a hundred and thirty odd year old staffer sitting there who can remember the John, John, John in the 19th century. <laughs> so, the, so, so how, like. What's your perspective on this time? The, the, you said was there a rebrand in 2013? Yeah, 2018. Yeah, actually it was funny, uh, just before we came here, Daniel and I uh, were looking at some of our back issues and thinking that our, the tagline from the 60s would be quite effective now, which is a rational take on the modern world. 
Uh, so uh, what we're kind of trying to do now, um, and in the last year or so, we've actually made a concerted effort to engage more explicitly with kind of social and political issues, which we were uh, kind of careful about before because of our charitable status. But I think we just thought there's so much happening in the world that there's a real place for kind of serious journalism that engages with ideas and engages with what's what's going on around us and helps people to make sense of it. Um, so we've done a few things which I think you just wouldn't really be able to do in a kind of more mainstream current affairs magazine. Um, that's actually my background and also Daniel's background is working in mainstream current affairs magazines and newspapers. Uh, so we both worked at the New Statesman um, and various other places. So. Uh, doing things like uh, we had a really interesting conversation, sort of long piece in which a journalist and an academic had a long conversation about the construct of whiteness and why we don't interrogate whiteness as an identity when we're talking about identity politics and so on and sort of looking at that in a very kind of, uh, in a way that kind of bridged the academic and the journalistic and was quite theoretical but also very, very much engaged with the present world and lots of conversations that are going on. Uh, similarly, had had a similar format of piece in a, in a later issue about empire and how the legacy of empire shapes the way that we think um, and the way that we operate in modern European society and that's something that we don't necessarily engage with I think in Britain but is very very relevant particularly in an era of Brexit and imperial nostalgia and all of those things so it's kind of trying to take that idea of uh, kind of rational debate and evidence and facts and so on uh, and using that to really interrogate and understand the systems that shape the way that we live and the way that we think. And I think that's quite an unusual thing to be able to do and something that the independence of the publication allows us to do that we wouldn't be able to do if we were bound by big commercial interests. Yeah, yeah. And, and I guess you're also, you have freedom to do things that you wouldn't be able to do if you had a lot of advertisers. That Absolutely. You had to, so the, the thinking about the actual structure and the, the, the shape of the magazines, I'd say that, so, so you three in the middle, uh, and sit closer towards a like a more traditional mm. news magazine that you have stories with headlines and pictures next to them and so that and, and I know like so Rob on DG you'll have like a lot of infographics that explore things and the, and Sean as well but how what what are the kind of decide design decisions that you're taking to try to get your story across? Um. I, I never wanted to run an independent magazine, not really, <laughs> not in or not in the sort of the the, the sense that so I, I always wanted to have a sort of something that was between independent and mainstream because I wanted to bring that kind of the rigor of mainstream titles that I've been associated with and when I had really great editors who kind of you know torn strips off me and taught me loads of stuff. I wanted to bring all of that and all of the stuff and really really good people who worked on really good stuff. To make a magazine that just you know happened to be independent because it was self-funded and it was kind of small and it was starting from from scratch. But I never really wanted to stay in the indie mag ghetto. I always wanted to be successful and sell lots of <laughs> magazines. You know I, mean? I'm, I'm, I speak as somebody who um, admires lots and lots of independent magazines, but a lot of them are vanity projects. Um, so I really wanted to go beyond that. And from the beginning, I really wanted it to be you know as everybody else here, everybody being paid properly. Um, everybody taking it really, really seriously, getting the kind of best people on board. And so actually for, for the aesthetic, that means giving people structure. Because actually navigating magazines is quite a big deal. Particularly, you know, you're, you, you go to a newsstand and you're surrounded by amazing looking titles. And actually when you flick and pick something up, you want to feel settled straight away. You know, there's all sorts of, uh, all sorts of basic pointers that you can give people, you know, like 
sections and you know, headlines and pull quotes and stand first and all sorts of stuff that just gives this kind of visual shorthand. This is a reassuringly, you know, kind of properly done magazine. You can engage with it. It's not an art project. And, and I think actually that's, there's quite a lot of independent magazines I see that actually have really great content and content that people have just absolutely slaved over but that I can't engage with because I have no idea where they are. I have no idea how I'm making my way through it. There doesn't seem to be a kind of controlling intelligence behind it. So we've always had this very, very strict structure where you run from the beginning of the quarter to the end of the quarter, using briefs down the side, a million and one incredibly complex design rules that you have to follow in order for it to look of a piece and look effortless even though it's incredibly kind of complicated. Um, so that's it, I think, is, is just treating it like you would a kind of a mainstream title rather than, and also another thing that people think is that they have to reinvent the magazine when they do their, their magazine. And we had a bit of that because we were like, um, oh, do you know what, we won't even have page numbers. And, and actually a lot of people have just been like, oh, you forgot the page numbers. <laughs> and, and, and that's the one thing that remains that we've just I'm stuck at, we don't have page numbers. But everything else is very, very traditional. Yeah, so here's our conservative, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. The, the, I'd like to say I'm not down with a lot of what Rob said. I'm just letting him say it. That's good. Uh, uh, just in here, so you are at the opposite end of the spectrum. So you you are you're uh, working in quite a kind of esoteric space anyway, because you're interested in various different concepts of migration, and the art direction of the magazine reflects that. So what are you trying to communicate to people? Well, yes, I've got to make a confession. I think I feel a bit of, of a fraud tonight because I'm uh, not a journalist. I'm not a trained editor. I do not earn any money with my control. For the first time, we paid each other 250 euros after three years on this project. We do pay contributors uh, since issue three. We now make uh, enough uh, money to pay all the contributors at a fair price. Uh, but of course, and we, we're not... I would say that we're not doing much journalism in the sense that we usually have one piece of journalism per issue. So someone who does research, someone who has uh, who, who has done research on a specific topic. But usually, uh, I believe it's more like we have lots of people who are other artists, so they're used to either uh, uh, do projects and then write about those projects. We have academics that we, we ask from them to do an effort of uh, generalization, so they need to explain their research in a convincing way in order to address a uh, very broad public and readership. Um, so yes, for us it's, it's, um, it's a very different way to, um, to do publication and to do indie magazine. We really wanted, we, we just had this topic we wanted to explore, we thought that nobody was exploring it the same way or that the people who had the capability of exploring that topic were actually completely you know, uh, uh, locked down in universities or in uh, uh, whatever, art, residen art residences and, and stuff like that. So the general public had no chance to access that. So we wanted to be that bridge. And then we also wanted to create that conversation. And that's why we created th that magazine. And the, also the way we do it uh, is quite, I believe is quite atypical in the sense that as you mentioned, uh, offshore studio who are uh, made of uh, Isabel and Christophe, they're based in Zurich and based in London, so again, it's something quite quite weird. Um, and uh, we try to have uh, content and form as intertwined, as interrelated as possible, in the sense that norm, I mean, we don't have content prevailing over design, we really try to have both of them being developed uh, as much uh, as possible, yeah, intertwined in relation, in relation to each other. 
uh, in order to have uh, an artistic direction which is extremely demanding, but also to have an editing uh, process uh, and a call for proposal which is as well, uh, uh, yeah, really demanding in terms of the quality, the diversity of the pieces we, we accept for each issue. Also, each issue has a theme, which means that we, those themes are quite broad, but we do ask people answering the call to you know, feed in that theme, and sometimes we also have to just send out really good pieces because people learn about this project uh, too late. Uh, so they've missed the chance to contribute, uh, which is frustrating for all of us contributors, readers. Uh, you don't know it, but yes, for you as well, and for us, but that's, that's part of the game as well, also to create frustration uh, for, for all of us, uh, positive frustration, I'd say. <laughs> positive frustration. Uh, right, I'm, I'm going to be asking for questions from the audience in a minute, so have, like, get them in your heads and, and raise a go. Sean, one of the big components to positive news is the environmental uh, angle. And you make very clear in your masthead the environmental credentials of your magazine. I mean, is there, is there a problem with producing a print magazine about these subjects that you're talking about? Um, no, hopefully not. It <laughs> um, could be potentially. I mean, um, you know, there's lots of there's lots of different ways you can print a magazine, and there's there's lots of different ways you can use resources. Um, so yeah, we're a carbon neutral magazine, and um, you know, one of the reasons we print with Park is because they offer um, really good environmental credentials. You know, there's hardly any waste in the the printing process, um, and I mean. You know, everything we do, we try and build around the values of the organisation, um, which guides you know how we run as an organisation and um, how we choose our content, and that really matters to our audience, um, which I think kind of ties into your thesis and what other people have been saying about you know the, the what I see is a growing demand for this kind of magazine that does have more clear purpose, that does have strong values. And um, you know, I think like like Rob was saying, um, I think people are looking for that kind of that trustworthy journalism, and also something that resonates with you know our worldview and um, and our values. And um, it's really interesting to see the the shift that's happening. I mean, it's it's especially interesting for news magazines um, in the last couple of years. Um, you know, and I think we're being held to account more as well as as media. You know the. Um, that the fact now with digital that we have so many different places we can get information, um, there's so many different narratives, so many different ways to see the world, and rightfully so, people are being more choosy about where they get information and what they trust. Um, and we've seen, and I know I've, I've talked to Rob about this before, I know there's other magazines, magazines as well, saw a, a massive shift since, um, especially since Trump was elected. Um, but I know mainstream news magazines have seen it as well. And it's, it's really interesting to see this. It was almost as if, um, you know, everyone's on autopilot and is kind of consuming the news and then suddenly it's like, you know, people step back and, and then we had this massive influx of subscriptions, I believe you guys did as well. And, um, you know... Um, Trump bump. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, I think it's, it's a really fascinating time to be doing this kind of journalism. I think it's great that you put this panel together because I think it really is um, uh, you know, a growing trend that there's, there's a demand for trustworthy journalism. Um, it's not just good journalism that's getting the facts across, but also that's coming from an organization that has the right purpose and values behind it. So 
you know, we're, we're a community benefit society, which is a form of cooperative. So we're actually owned by readers in 33 countries around the world who invested in a crowdfunding campaign. So we can say to them, you know, in our articles of association, we're, we're duty bound to serve the community, to serve the public. Um, so everything has to follow that. And we have very clear purpose. And we're doing factual journalism, but it's in service to informing people in a way that inspires them. You know, like, as, as you put it in general terms, it's, you know, it is about contributing towards creating a better world. So, you know, that comes into um, looking at our impact on the environment as well. And, um, you know, as a, as a news publication, we're not trying to tell people what should happen, what the solutions to the problems are, but we just want to offer a way of seeing the world that, that shows the possibilities. And of course, you know, then our audience can be better informed to see that there's a potential ways forward. Okay. I said I was going to open to the audience. Does anyone have any questions for the panel? Okay, so the, so the, the, the tr tradition dictates that the first question for a panel is always about the business and how do you make this thing happen and how do you do this? So the, so the question for anyone who couldn't hear it is, is about how do you go about making this magazine without falling into the same tracks that the magazines that you're trying to avoid fall into? Well, we don't actually make any money, so it's not a problem. Um, so that's one way we're getting around it. Uh, we don't take any advertising, so that's another way of doing it. Um, I, I think for us personally, the, like, the, the way that we're trying to make the most impact is um, trying to encourage people to sort of take action once they've read the articles that we put together in an issue. So for, for every piece we put together, we give um, readers something to go away, either like, to sign a petition, to sign to a charity, to uh, read another book, to watch another film on the subject, to kind of like go and give that information like life outside of our publication so that they can think about other ways that they can engage with the subject matter that's got nothing to do with us. Because it doesn't really, it doesn't stop with us at all. We don't have to go up and down the line for everyone, but does anyone else have something they want to, to say? I just echo what I, I said um, a couple of minutes earlier in that I think what's got really strong value now is having really clear purpose and values that people can connect to build a community of support around your mission and vision for your publication first and then be open with those people about where you want to take it and then find brilliant people to help you do it. Just out of interest, so the, for all of your magazines, Samira, this won't really apply to you, but did the magazine come first or was there something else that came before it? So was there a web version of Positive News before the print version came? Um, for positive news, the, the organisations actually started in 1993, and uh, our founder, she ran a couple of small magazines first, similar publications, but for her, I think it really came from um, a real a vision, a sense of purpose. She recognised you know, the, the impact of the news media on us collectively, how it shapes our shared understanding of the world, our view of other people, you know, how it affects our, our sense of what's possible. And, and she could see, you know, she really felt a sense of social purpose with it. So she recognised this is the vehicle that needs to help create that change in the world. I want to do good journalism that shows all the un unreported stories, which of course were much more underreported then before the internet had taken off. Um, and, and so then, it was a print magazine from the beginning? It was actually um, a print newspaper. It was a free newspaper that was distributed by our readers, about 200 of our readers um, around the country. 
used to get copies and distribute it in their local areas. So it started off really grassroots, really small. Um, we relaunched it as a magazine in January 2016 after running the crowdfunding campaign that I talked about earlier. So that was an, an initiative to, to relaunch it and scale it up. You, you as well, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, any questions? Um, you uh, hinted at um, changes in the distribution model, and you said that there were um, some exciting developments. I'd like to hear about them, <laughs> and I also like to know: is it still the only way that you can move and bring scale to your audience? Is it really by going into W Smith? Because you know, positive news have just done that year now. Yeah, two weeks ago. Yeah. So we're just trying to find the answer to that question yeah. right now. Yeah, so, but, you know, I'd like to hear, because with all of the independents that are in this room, distribution is still an issue. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, so again, for anyone here, so a uh, really good question. How do you actually get this mag in front of people? Like, how do you manage the distribution? Do you have to be in Smiths, essentially? Uh, for, for us, it's been, and it still is, uh, a major issue for Migrant Journal. So again, we, we started very much DIY. We started with 800 copies, and for some reason, we still don't understand. We sold out extremely quickly. So we printed. Now we are printing 4,000 copies each issue. Um, and it's, it's an issue because we distribute ourselves. And several times, we ask the question, uh, I mean, should we go for a distributor? And every time, we decided not to, in order to be able to have that direct relationship with bookshops. Um, recently, again, a, a very difficult question uh, was um, you know, was brought up. I mean, we had a, the biggest uh, bookshop uh, chain in the US proposing us to join them, and we said no because we we did not think we could afford it. We because they wanted you to print a certain number of copies. Well, because they could not tell us how many copies they would get. They could not clearly tell us how, how much they would take per issue, because they had lots of hidden, hidden costs. And I asked them, just tell me frankly, you know, all the hidden costs, and then I'll make a decision. And they could not tell me that. And the third reason, which is, uh, 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 is that they also apparently destroy copies that they can't sell. Because it's it's less uh, costly than to return the copies, especially if you return them to Europe. So also from a, a sustainable point of view, we had an issue with that. And from a, you know, it's all babies. They're all our babies. <laughs> it's the advice. So we don't want to have them destroyed. It's worse than that, though, isn't it? Because they they not only destroy it, but they take the covers off and then send them back to you. So that's really yeah, that's even more. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> so it's sending your baby's yeah. ears back to you. <laughs> <laughs> that was difficult, but but it's still to answer your, your initial question. It's still the best way to reach out to a new readership. And I was not convinced at first, I mean, I love Bookshop, but it, it was ver a very difficult financial uh, decision to take for us. We would not make any profit with issue one by selling in bookshops because of the cost of a copy printed. And But actually, the key to Migrant Journal's success is also uh, what bookshops have done for us. Because we've people who do not know the publication at all, they will go to a bookshop, discover through pages and actually buy it. So it's really, really, really important to be as many bookshops as we can. So I cannot answer for large uh, chains like WH Mies, Falls, uh, Barnes and Nobles in the US, because I do not have experience. But in terms of even small DIY, uh, uh, small independent bookshops, yeah, that's quite important.
Yeah, I second that actually. Um, so with the New Humanist, one of the things that we've been doing is um, working on distribution. So as I mentioned, we don't have a marketing budget. So we've been looking at kind of improving distribution in different ways. And um, that's partly just been being in more shops, so independent bookshops, um, being in more, and in those kinds of independent bookshops, I think you get a kind of engaged readership who are interested in discovering new publications. But actually, WH Smith has been really important. <laughs> As, as you'd imagine, so kind of being in travel branches of WH Smith in particular, we've experimented with various different kinds of um, things around like positioning in the shop and various stuff, which actually was uh, equally important when I worked at the New Statesman at kind of major current affairs weekly, kind of being in certain branches of WH Smith, particularly travel branches and where you're situated in the shop, that just does make a really immediate difference to your newsstand sales. Um, so. I think as an independent magazine, it just it's important because uh, your kind of best advertising is the product itself. If you don't have the huge reach that uh, kind of major national publication does in terms of advertising on the tube or whatever it is, or getting kind of national pickup in the newspapers for your stories, so kind of having something which I think everyone here shares the idea of like a very kind of beautifully designed thing that feels like something nice to have in your hand is something that you want to keep and hang on to. Uh, oh, this might temperamental, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, this is the one that broke earlier. Um, yeah, having um, having a kind of beautiful product can feel a bit redundant if it's not kind of getting out to people. And that's probably the biggest challenge for us is, is we, the kind of evidence that we have suggests that when people see the magazine and read it, they really like it, but it's kind of getting it to people and distribution, I think, is still one of the best tools we have for that. I'd probably just add to that that, um, yeah, so we've just gone into Smith and we're, we're kind of looking at, yeah, where, where can we get to in mass distribution? How will that impact um, you know, the people we can reach? But um, what, at the moment, what evidence shows us that's really valuable for us is direct relationships with our audience, our community of support. So, um, you know, a lot of our marketing is social media. Um, a lot of organic social media, obviously the content itself, all the content that's in print is also online. Um, that is the best marketing for us. And we see you know, a lot of subscriptions coming, people coming through digital. Um, and I think that direct relationship with the audience is, is a really strong foundation. And, and obviously there's different um, types of people you can reach in terms of uh, how they engage with your magazine, where they, what their point of contact is with finding your magazine. And, um, I think for us having that really strong, passionate core support base, people who are ongoing subscribers, people who support us um, as members of monthly donations, um, people who shout about the magazine and photograph it every time it arrives and tell all their friends, it's that, we're seeing that it takes time to build but then when it starts building it really pays off and that's, that's a really strong base whereas the, you know, the mainstream distribution we don't know yet, it's a, it's, um, feels a bit more haphazard say. Um, but you know, I love um, w with the independent retailers. I think there's just brilliant things happening there. And obviously, it's smaller scale than working with the high street chains and so on. But it's for, you know, for a, from a publisher's point of view, it's so much a nicer experience. And Rob and I were just talking earlier about how much the kind of the supply chain at, at the at the mass scale is so rigged against the publisher. You end up with no margin. No one seems to care about your product. Um, you know the customer service is terrible. It's um, so 
you know, there's, there's a great opportunity to build a really strong foundation working with independent retailers um, and, you know, through things like Stack as well and there's the great community around independent magazines. I think you know, that's, that, that, that should never be underestimated. It's not all about um, going mainstream, I think. I just quick thought on Smith's is um, I would treat your going into Smith's um, as a marketing exercise. So I wouldn't expect to make any serious money out of coffee sales from Smith's, but that it would be a kind of vehicle for people to hear about you and consequently buy subscriptions. That's how you've always treated it with Smith's. Uh, you've been talking about like support and from your audience or like you get support from the bookshop or the publisher. Um, and how does that support also reflect on like for example the printer because from like the migrant journal I know that they have such a special treatment that is like a, in the in the design that is probably not very cheap to print. Um, so is that also like kind of support coming from the printers? <laughs> no support. <laughs> <laughs> I've just learned today that the all paper for the next issue increased by 20%. Oh. It's not the printer, though, it's the paper yeah. producer. Um, no, I mean, Migrant Journal looks more expensive than it is, in the sense that it's a normal printing process, as you well know, um, uh, which is a five-color uh, uh, print process. So we do use a technique, printing technique, which is quite rare, but actually in terms of um, so we use, it, you, we use a way to deal with colors which is quite rare still, but the printing technique is fairly old-fashioned. We do print in Germany, uh, so it's not the cheapest play to, place to print. Uh, it do also means that we need to ship everything back to the UK, so it does mean a lot of issues in terms of logistics, and uh, Brexit is obviously a huge uh, a fear for us. I mean, to put it bluntly, if Brexit happens, if, if hard Brexit happens, we leave right away because we just go down. Um, so yeah, no. In terms of, of printer, so that's my experience. We we go, we went with a uh, a really good printer with a really good reputation. Uh, also, that's that was a choice of the art directors. Uh, I mean, I was not involved at all in this. And really, the ambition at, from uh, with Michael Journal from the very beginning, um, because we knew that we would never have it a profitable business in the sense that it would actually allow us to to you know to have a, a to be an employee even part-time so we really wanted to have the best to do the best publication possible both in terms of printing in terms of editing in terms of design and and really that's why we did a Kickstarter as well because we really wanted to um, yeah just the best ever publication we could do ourselves so we had no limits in the sense that if that was the perfect printer for us, then it meant we just had to raise more money instead of actually going back down and going to somewhere uh, cheaper, somewhere else, the trade structure. Nice. Uh, thanks to Mr. Ashley. Uh, I'm obviously, it's one thing coming up with uh, engaging editorial, but it's another thing actually being able to monetize that and turn that into a business. I'd just be interested to know, um, well, surely, obviously, alluded to quite an interesting point about aligning your editorial That's interesting. So, there's, uh, so are there actually conflicts within these magazines between what you want to say and just trying to make the thing? Yeah, there's, well, I wouldn't necessarily say 
conflicts as such. There's definitely compromises and there's um, there's points of debate that we you know make very careful decisions about. So uh, we've got quite a unique business model. So um, the subscriptions is our biggest income, and then there's also membership, which is mainly from our online audience, people paying regular amounts monthly to support our journalism, um, which a lot of them read for free online. And then we also have a unique partnership scheme called Brands of Inspiration, which is where we work with selected ethical organisations, um, give them promotional pages in a print magazine, and give them branded content online. Um, so it's, it's, it's a kind of advertising, but it's selective, um, and it, the idea is that it gives more to the reader than, than just an advert, um, and maintains trust. Um, but, yeah, so we have to be careful about who we work with because uh, our readers have really high expectations of us and they, they really, because they literally own Positive News, the ones that invested in our community share offer, then they, they really take ownership of it and they, they feel that they, you know, we have to make decisions that, that they see as right, you know, they're not, they're not a passive consumer. Um, so yeah, we have to make careful decisions about kind of brands we work with. But then also, um, I mean, editorially, increasingly, the more we kind of widen our audience and grow, the more we're getting criticism for some of the things we do. So, for example, the current issue, we've got Russell Brand on the cover, who's um, you know, a controversial figure at the best of times. Um, but you know, we've, we've had a lot of people love it, but we've had some people who um, aren't pleased about it, and they, you know, they've been subscribing for a long time and really not happy about this. But interestingly, it's not because it's Russell Brand, it's because he's a celebrity. It's because we've got a celebrity on our cover, we're an independent magazine as we've, and we've never had a celebrity on our cover before. So I think the more we kind of try to, to grow and widen our appeal, the more those kind of conflicts are gonna come up. But we can, you know, we know that we take those decisions very carefully and we believe in them, we can justify them and we can have a good debate about them with our, our audience. Which is the great thing is that you know for us we find that people do want to have that constructive debate and um, it's great on Facebook as well especially where you know some occasionally we get people trolling a bit but the community kind of self-regulates we very rarely have to jump in and like ban anyone or you know because people will say oh why why do you think that have you read the article and actually you know you might want to look at this point and and it kind of you know we've seen our community bring people around on on different issues so. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting. So how, how about and so so Rob, for example, so so DG has has <coughs> always made a virtue of being ad free. What would it take for an advertiser to sway you? What what would what would they need to put in front of you? Ten pounds. <laughs> Ten pounds fifty. Um, that's a really good question. So um so we've we've never had ads in the magazine, and partly that dovetails quite nicely with our philosophy. But partly, um, you know, it was just a kind of uh, a reality that you'd have to be a maniac to want to put an advert in a magazine for the print runs that we had in the first few years. Um, so, you know, actually, it, it, it sort, of, sort of spooled into kind of the philosophy and so on as well. We got approached a few times. So quite early on, um, the Oxford Karate Centre. <laughs> and they were like, can we put an advert in your magazine? And we're like, well, we do really need the money. But also just to have an entire sort of pristine magazine with no ads in and then just one for the Oxford Karate Centre. <laughs> like, we've also got quite a lot of readers in the US. They're going to be like, so what, Oxford in England? <laughs> I'm not going there. Um, so yeah, we've had a few sort of random bits and bobs. Um, I think it'd be a hostage to fortune to say we'd never have ads in the magazine. And actually, if somebody could come to us and say, right, 
will sell 10 ads in, all from brands that you genuinely like and that you would genuinely buy from, and that are kind of sort of right on, and so not kind of like banks and airlines and kind of in investment companies and stuff like that, but people who make lovely watches, you know, for about 100 quid. Yeah, that sort of stuff. <laughs> and we could get you 30,000 pounds an issue, and you can put that into much better journalism, and then you can add another 50 pages on for the subscribers without putting the subscriptions up, and you can continue to hold them at the same level as, as, as in 2011. Yeah, so you're right, I'd do that. Yeah, why not? That's a good deal. You'd have to have a proper conversation with the subscribers, though, because a lot of them like the fact that there's no ads in there. I think also a lot of them probably might not necessarily notice if you had a few in there that were kind of well-placed. There's a brilliant magazine that I do love, um, Smith Journal. Um, uh, in Australia, and I think they get it really, really right. It's all kind of um, nicely integrated, and when you read it, well, when I read it, I'm like, oh, this is for people like me, because it's it's not sort of, it's not like, it's not models looking really kind of like really angry and like staring into the far distance and wearing a coat that costs like what I make in three months or stuff like that. It's just like somebody's like made a nice leather satchel, you know, and I could buy it or, or stuff like that, or a nice gourmet beer. So I think as long as you get that tone right, it's not a disaster, but it's not something that we're kind of, we're, we're actively pursuing, I don't think. I think it's just about having transparency with your readership though, isn't it? Just being honest about any decision that you make. And, you know, advertising is not necessarily the devil in your magazine if it means you can make it properly. And also, it's worth bearing in mind that you can take your own ethics to kind of the nth degree. It's like, is it advertising you have a problem with, or is it kind of like all sorts of other things? In the last issue that we published, which was about power, we talked about corporate power, and we then investigated our own kind of like supply chain and the inks and papers that we used that were all like owned by massive corporates, and we're just like, shit. <laughs> <laughs> what do we do about that? But we just kind of like put it out there and were honest about like, our, yeah, our own supply chain. Oh, that was amazing. So you also did the light. The light that is bouncing off this page and hitting your retina is produced by and like the, like these three companies that make all the light bulbs in the world. Yeah, it was more to scare people than to. She said a question for ages. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm pointing more that way. Go ahead, over here. I mean, we've got a question. You go on, you go. Can I get my answer later? I'm <laughs> <laughs> um, just going to go back to so a few of your panel have said about um, paying your contributors and photographers fairly but um, I'm a third year journalism student and it's very difficult for me to get work that's not unpaid at the minute a lot of internships will be like I just did one which was three months at a magazine that I won't name but it was really good I had good fun, they paid me expenses but I was writing articles and they just I didn't, I didn't get paid for them, basically. Um, I was just wondering what advice you would give to someone who wants to break into, like, especially print journalism, that's what I'm interested in. Um, someone who wants to break into that field that doesn't necessarily have the means to support themselves on an unpaid internship. Yeah, so how, how, do you, how do you get into this journalistic world like without getting completely shafted on the way? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I also started in journalism by uh, doing unpaid internships, and it's miserable. And I had the benefit of having parents in London who I could live with, so it's a lot easier. Um, I think it's really, really hard. Uh, uh, so completely appreciate your kind of difficulties, and I think that's probably why most of us on the panel feel quite strongly about paying contributors fairly, because I imagine, I certainly have, I imagine everyone's probably been shafted at some point by people who want you to do stuff for free or for really 
kind of well below uh, fair rates, and that includes actually, it's kind of almost more insulting when it's a well-resourced big publication. Obviously, all of journalism's in a bit of a crisis, but it is um, kind of when you know that someone's got a columnist on top dollar. Um, I think that it's, it kind of comes a point where, obviously, when you're starting out, uh, you need to be getting experience, but it's kind of working out where you're being exploited and where an experience is actually useful to you or not. And I think uh, not being afraid to ask for payment in a situation where they would have to be paying someone to do that work anyway. If you're writing articles that they would be paying a freelance journalist who pitched to write an article for, then they should be paying you to do it. And that's exploitation, fair and simple. If not, and, and I think actually, uh, in the kind of 10 years since I started in journalism, I think there's been a lot more of an industry-wide conversation about that. So I think that people who are asking you to do that and are kind of padding out their content by getting a young journalist to write for free know that they're doing something bad, particularly, particularly if they're a mainstream publication. So I think don't be afraid to ask for that. If it's a bit of work that, that would be paid if you weren't, if they didn't know that you're in a kind of vulnerable position because you're trying to break into the industry, then don't don't be afraid to ask for that. I think that would be my bit of advice. If I can add something, with a word of caution, yeah. not being a journalist, um, but uh, I got to write for uh, The Garden because I had a niche. So my advice would be, as a young journalist, try to find your niche. May that be a topic, may that be a language, may that be a city where you're based. Uh, take risks if you can. Um, and um, I got to write for The Garden because I knew Paris urbanism and urban politics and sociology inside out. So I could propose them pieces that nobody else could write for them. Um, so yeah, that would be my, my, my sort of uh, neophyte advice in journalism. I think also if you're doing an internship where you don't feel like there's any value in it, then leave. Like, you know, <laughs> because you can go and make work, you can go and, you know, produce something that's sort of journalistic worth on your own, you don't have to have the backing of someone else, and then you know, that's, that's something that you've got that you can try and pitch to someone, and that's much more valuable than just sticking around somewhere, I think. Just add to that, um, pitch really well. Like, you'd be amazed the amount of pitches we get from professional journalists that are like, one line like, hey, I've got this great idea about this charity doing this. It's like, no thanks. You know, it's like, gets so many pitches and press releases and if you send a, a really clear well-written um, pitch with a, with a clear story and angle and where you're going to get your data and your sources and all that panned out something that an editor could just say yes to straight away um, then you've got a really good chance so I think and I'd add to what you said about you know being confident with it assume you should be paid assume your own value go straight in there knowing that with a clear pitch and that's a good way to set yourself up. But I, I do sympathise, it's, it's really tough, you know? Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. Um, Justine is exactly right, you need, you need a niche, you need something that sets you apart from the 10,000 other people who are trying to do the same thing. Um, when it comes to internships, you absolutely have to insist on being paid. I just mentioned the fact that it's illegal um, not to be paying you at the moment. Um, you, you need to get minimum wage um, for, for your internships, otherwise it's nonsense. Um, but here's one thing that it's, it is incredibly difficult to, you know, if you're just going as a freelance journalist rather than trying to get a staff a job. Um, and uh, it's really, really difficult to start writing the stuff that you want to for the publications you want to. And it is the case that you might have to accept lower word rates than you want to sometimes to get in there. But you still have to eat. You, you need your kind of bread and butter. So my sort of thought on it is, um, and what I did when I was uh, freelance, is just try to find some bread and butter work. I try to find some, some like putting up a shelf equivalent of journalism. Um, there's lots of 
brands out there who need content all the time, you know, and will pay handsomely for it because they don't know how to do it. And there's lots and lots of really boring industry magazines out there that have pages to fill. You know, so I would, I would sort of look away from the news then, look away from all glamorous stuff. Uh, look in America in particular because they pay properly still for journalism. Get yourself those few jobs that keep money ticking over, um, give you a chance to kind of learn how to bosh stuff off really, really quickly, um, and then you know, use that little bit of slack, that little bit of spare room that's given to you to relentlessly pursue expertise um, in a saleable area, and then you're gonna start to gradually build that up. But my God, it's, like it's, it's, it's so difficult uh, to do it. You will do it, but it's difficult. <laughs> All right, I'm going to complete the pair over here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes, I, I can't, I think I can't lose one anyway. Um, but I think, yeah, we've spoken a lot about uh, resources or lack thereof. Um, and I was wondering if you think that creates any um, class barriers into the uh, world of independent magazines, and maybe not just financially, but like socially, in terms of like distribution and stuff. Um, if so, what does that look like? And then. If so, do you have any answers? Okay, so class barriers in independent magazines, these, these lovely, expensive, £10 magazines. That, <laughs> yeah. um, so well, not, not just financially, maybe even just like yeah. social, like, I'm from Birkenhead. Um, yeah, so and so I never, so my partner. I'm sick, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I never saw magazines like this until I moved to London, so I'm really interested in, 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 in that kind of thing. Sorry, I know it's quite a broad question. Uh, I can answer in terms of um, contributors, um, we definitely make quite a concerted effort to not just commission from people from a certain background and that's something that I think as an independent magazine you have the freedom to do which is good. So uh, when I was working at the New Statesman where I worked for nearly five years before going freelance and, and then working at the New Humanist, um, there's always quite a lot of pressure to get uh, kind of celebrity names, like like not necessarily celebrities, but like big big name writers who, generally speaking, are drawn from a very specific social background. Um, and so I think that's something that we really kind of enjoy and relish doing at the New Humanist is kind of cultivating writers who maybe haven't written a long piece before and supporting them through that, people from different backgrounds. Um, and that can really, I think, be a really important role that, that independent magazines can play, that can form a real bridge to, to more mainstream writing if that's what those people want to pursue. So I've had a couple of writers in particular, like Rennie Edo Lodge, who's had huge success recently with her book, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. She was writing in a few different places, but The New Humanist was one of her really regular writing gigs. We gave her a column. She was writing for us, kind of working with her uh, on various different ideas. And that's a really brilliant to see her go on to bigger kind of massive success. Um, there's another writer, Ismail Ainash, who wrote a piece for us earlier this year, which was about his experience growing up uh, in the kind of London immigrant Somali community and acquiring citizenship, having come to the UK as a refugee. Uh, and that was, he'd written in a few places again, but we worked with him for a really long time on that and this kind of very long form piece about his experiences, which then got picked up and republished by The Guardian Longreads, which was an amazing opportunity for him. Also great for us because it then kind of had a credit that it was from the New Humanist and drove lots of subscriptions, but it was also really good for a writer who maybe is, you know, is quite young, is not from the background that most kind of prominent journalists are from, and gave maybe wouldn't have been confident approaching the Guardian Long Reads editors with an idea. So that's something that we definitely very consciously try and do, and I think could do more of, but, but very consciously try and do in terms of writers and contributors and you maybe don't have the freedom in my experience don't have the freedom to do that at a mainstream publication but maybe others have something to say about um readership yeah 
think it's a, I think it's actually quite a good time at the moment. I think um, internships are are very exclusive um, because there's so many people offering <coughs> internships that aren't paid. And actually, if you can't afford to support yourself in London for months at a time, then you know that that kind of cuts out a whole swathe of people. But actually, um, there's a lot of good stuff going. It's a far as like we we're kind of living in. Um, almost a meritocracy of ideas when it comes to pitching features. Insofar as like we get, you know, maybe fifty features pitches a week. And most of them are dross and like incredibly poorly put together. But then we really go after the good ones. We don't care uh, where they're from. So actually, you know, it doesn't you know, you're not limited to your country or, you know, um, or like certain publications. And actually back in the day you would have to know in order to, you know, get an idea in front of a features editor or commissioning editor, you'd have to you know, know them, maybe friend of a friend, like go out for lunch, meet at the same parties, be part of that sort of set, and they draw on a tiny group of people. Whereas actually now, like great ideas just cut through, great ideas and beautiful pitches, um, you know, which which get people excited, they they can cut through. Okay, I think we're going to say one more question before we bring things to a close. Any more questions? Hello, uh, I'm just curious to know whether this is your main source of income. The job that you do. Okay, so so is this the main source of your income? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, only source of income. Uh, probably about 50 50 for me. It's like definitely my regular income because I, I work for the Nihonist two days a week and the rest of the time I'm a writer, so I write freelance for publications. So it's like a steady income, probably about 50% of my income. Uh, I, I would say that. It's very difficult to say to find someone who is making an independent magazine and that's the thing that they're doing and they they make all their money through selling copies of the magazine. But you will find people making independent magazines who are doing that and there's like some kind of agency associated with the magazine or they're also selling advertising or the it it gets cobbled together. The, it is difficult to do but it, it can be done. It's possible. Yeah. No, I was just curious because I, I think the conversation was really interesting, but sometimes I struggle with the word independent and kind of like taking pride out of not having um, advertisement in your magazine because I think sometimes it's not really out of choice, it's more out of, I'm so small, no one wants to advertise on my magazine. As, as, as Rob said. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you raised a fair point. And um, yeah, I don't know, like I'm, I think if independent magazines could could be a less a little less independent and have a little bit more advertisement and pay their contributors well, and people who actually put the hours in to create this wonderful project could support themselves by doing that, it would be really great. <laughs> this sounds like a conversation that should go on at the bar. <laughs> so okay, right. Um, thank you again to Park Communications for being here and sharing those all their magazines. Please do. Come over, take a look at them, have a chat with the guys. Um, the four of these people are going to be selling their magazines from here. If you would like to come and get a copy, please do. They'd be very happy. Otherwise, please stay, have a drink with us, have a chat, tell these people how much you love what they're doing. Um, and we'll see you at the next one in a couple of months. Cheers.
Okay, that's all for this week. I would like to say thanks again to all of our speakers and to everyone who came out to be there on the night. We did indeed stick around afterwards and have a drink and it was brilliant to speak with so many people who really care about quality independent journalism. If you've enjoyed this, you'll find lots more conversations with independent magazine makers in our archives. Our episodes are normally about 25 minutes long, so much shorter than this, and feature a conversation with just one or two people about the work that they're doing with magazines. So if you'd like to hear some of those, just search for Stack Magazines on SoundCloud or iTunes, and you can dip into them. And of course, if you follow us while you're there, we'll be able to deliver the next one as soon as it's ready. We release a new episode every Friday, so thanks very much for listening to this one, and we'll be back with another episode next week.